The movie will begin in five moments, the mindless voice announced. All those unseated will await the next show. We filed slowly, languidly into the hall. The auditorium was vast and silent. As we seated and were darkened, the voice continued. The program for this evening is not new. You have seen this entertainment through and through. You've seen your birth, your life and death. You might recall all of the rest. Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking about Oliver Stone's 1991 rock biopic, The Doors, which means I am joined by the Lizard King himself, Adam Risky. Hey, Adam. Girl, we couldn't get much better. <laughs> I love that line delivery. Um, yeah. I'm excited to talk Can about you dig this that, movie. Guys? Can you dig that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm excited to talk about this movie with you because I'm still deciding how I feel about it. Oh, yeah. I've seen it like maybe 20 times and I still don't know how I'll sit with it until I start talking. Oh, boy. This is going to be <laughs> something else. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we will be talking about The Doors in just a little bit. But first, Adam, I will ask you, have you seen anything good lately? Yeah, I've been um, trying to keep up with the 2021 releases. Um, so I've seen a few of them. Luckily, there haven't been too many, so it's been easy. How many have I only know of like one or two? I've seen three. Okay. Um, I'll start with the third best and worst movie of the year. Um that's Lockdown. Did you watch Lockdown? I didn't watch Lockdown. Remind me what Lockdown is. Lockdown is the Doug Liman movie that's on HBO Max with Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor that they shot during quarantine. Yeah, I saw that it existed. I don't think I knew that it was Doug Liman. Yeah, yeah. He, he Although there's no like real... Doug Lyman touches to it that I could tell until maybe the end when it's sort of a like they're in quarantine together and then they get fed up with like the way things are and big business and corporations doing layoffs and things like that. So they decide to pull off a heist of a famous London based department store. And it's like when it's the heist, which is about the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie, it's fun. And you're like, this is what the whole movie should have been. And then the rest of the hour and 25 minutes is basically like one of those movies where you could tell like the actors got the script and they're like, this is a great script. And they're like making footnotes and circling things. And like they've got coffee stains on the script. And then by the time they shoot it, there's like nothing left for the audience. It's just like this actor piece that's like been devoured and consumed. Mm -hmm. And I was just it's weird because they they obviously shot it early in quarantine. So there's stuff where like people are going outside and not wearing masks. And I'm just like, I, I, I can't deal with this right now. Like I can't, 
mind quarantine. Like, I need to be at least where we are in quarantine right now. So, I don't know. I like Anne Hathaway. I like Chiwetel Ejiofor. They're good together, but it's kind of a drag. Like, the last thing I want while I'm in quarantine is to watch a movie about people spending it in a more boring, stressful way than I am. (laughs) I'm surprised to hear that that's the worst movie of 2021, because I thought for sure there was a worse movie. Oh, we'll talk about that next. (laughs) Are you talking about the little things? I am. Yeah. I wanted to like this more than I did, didn't you? (laughs) Um, I wanted to like it because it's a new movie and it's, uh, we're watching it on HBO max instead of in theaters and it's got Denzel Washington and the cinematography while dark is good, but the fact that it's written and directed by John Lee Hancock kind of handicaps it from the beginning. Like I should have, I should have known it was a scorpion. I perked up a little bit because he wrote the script in the 90s and he also wrote A Perfect World in the 90s. So I was like, okay, well, maybe. But yeah, the movie's like nowhere near as good as A Perfect World or even like Rookie Year or some of his other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought it was like a weirdly deferential Denzel Washington performance. Like, I get that he's kind of, you know, this weary former detective and everything like that with, like, this dark backstory. But, I don't know, just as, like, an actor, like, he's usually such a the force of nature. Like, to see him kind of in this type of role, I was thinking, like, is this his kind of next stage where he's going to become, like, not the lead of movies, but he's going to be, like, the and credit guy? Right, right, you know right. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, for, like, for her. Um, and then Rami Malek, like, He's, Rami Malek's weird. Like, I don't buy him in most roles, and this is one where I don't really buy it because he's, like, a detective named Jimmy, and I'm like, he was totally a James. There's no way anybody's called this guy Jimmy in his life. It's impossible to accept him as a normal human being. Yeah, he's very tightly wound, and he seems like he's up to something all the time. Yeah, he's just a giant weirdo, and I'm wondering how much of, like... Freddie Mercury is bleeding over as I'm watching him because I'm just like forever ruined by that performance. I could see him, you know, I know he's playing the villain in the next Bond movie and I'm sure like he'll be easy to accept in that kind of a role because he is a weirdo and so it fits. But seeing him just play like a normal guy detective with a wife and kids, like I was not buying it. And some of it was his acting choices too, but it's nothing compared to uh, the third lead in the movie yeah who it's jared leto who clearly is doing a mixture of like christopher lloyd and dennis the menace with the joker (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's been a long time since i saw dennis the menace so you may have to explain that one (laughs) i just mean he's all like dirty and greasy and like wearing one outfit the entire movie why the fake nose why any of the makeup yeah yeah i don't know but i thought the movie was like not good but not offensive in any way like for the first two acts and then in the third act i was just like these are patently stupid decisions like this is like the lost world or not the lost world jurassic world fallen kingdom dumb some of the stuff that (laughs) these guys are doing and 
it's like the most relaxed like homicide department ever. <laughs> <laughs> like you know what I'm talking about? Oh, like yeah. they would show in the office. It's basically like oh, these guys are just clock watchers. And, like, you know, if we get something done today, great. But, like, you know, the FBI can come in. They could clean this up. <laughs> well, like, There's given, no urgency in any of it. Given where it goes, I don't want to spoil anything, but the climate that we're in right now yeah. makes the last act of this movie, like, downright irresponsible. In terms of in terms of in terms of putting it in a movie, obviously what the characters are doing is irresponsible as well. But I'm saying like in in terms of representation in a movie, uh, I was pretty offended by how this movie wraps things up. Yeah, I could see that. I I just didn't care at that point, but like I I totally get what you're saying, and like I'm surprised I didn't think of that too. It's it's real icky. Yeah. 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 But I guess we're supposed but, to be okay with it because we like these characters, I, you know? Because uh, Rami yeah. Malek has kids, like what? I did not like this movie. <laughs> no. Do you think one of these uh, HBO Max Warner Brothers movies will be good, or have they been Netflix up? Like what's I, going on? I don't have high hopes. I mean, obviously, I'm excited for. Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla. I honestly don't even know what the official title is. I haven't watched the trailer for it. I like Adam mm-hmm. Wingard. I like giant monster movies. I'm not the world's biggest fan of Kong Skull Island. I only kind of liked that last Godzilla movie. So there's very little reason to believe that I will actually like Godzilla versus Kong, but I'm excited for it. And then I don't know like where, dune or suicide squad are gonna land i don't know if they'll end up on hbo max or not but i'm excited for those yeah i i have i have somewhat high hopes for judas and the black messiah that's the next one just because i like daniel kalula and i like lakeith stanfield so that seems interesting um tom and jerry i think will probably not be that good no. i'm sorry no uh, <laughs> i saw it yeah, when the- it was the adventures of rocky and bullwinkle yeah, yeah. I, I saw it when it was Tom and Jerry the movie in 1992. I'm oh, good. I uh, never saw Tom and Jerry the movie. I It was just me. It was just me. You were, um, you were the one. I was the premiere. <laughs> I walked up the rouge carpet. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I hate those Godzilla Kong movies because they always trick me where I see the trailer and I'm like, this looks amazing. And then I watch it. I'm like, these aren't for me ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's very possible. Yeah. So we'll see. But one movie that you, you championed that Uh I ended up watching that is the best movie so far this year is PG psycho Gorman. Oh yeah. It's the best. (laughs) It reminded me so much of, like, the Turbo Kid version of, like, all these fantasy things that I watched when I was a kid, but, like, kind of too old to be watching them, like Star Kid and Warriors of Virtue and Power Rangers, and I got, like, some Captain EO vibes in there and stuff. Nice. It's just really funny, and the characters are so bizarre. Like, my favorite one was the... the, um, the kind of good guy character who's like this white marshmallow knight with like 3d glasses. (laughs) (laughs) 
And like anytime it hit, it gets hit with like a sword stroke, it's just like profusely bleeding. <laughs> like that. And the girl, the lead girl, is like a psychopath, and it's so, it's so funny. Um, and the crazy bomb. Oh god, she's this is the best. <laughs> and the fact that she looks like one of my childhood friends' sisters is even better. So I'm just like that. I knew it. I knew it. She was weird. Um, and then. Yeah, the dad character is the one that I think is my MVP because even after the movie's over, like days later, I'm thinking about stuff he said and just laughing to myself. Yeah, that was like some of my f- biggest laughs of the movie were some of his uh, lines and his deliveries. Um, when he first starts talking about, you know, some people think that, what, what do they ask? Like, are monsters real? And he asks, like, well, you know, yeah. some people think that man is the true monster i don't know it was it cracked me up i keep cracking up at the um he's like one time somebody uh, a guy in a van said hey why don't you come in here kid and look at my baseball cards and i did and he had an amazing collection <laughs> <laughs> he's like i was so happy that i took that chance <laughs> my lucky bat cracks me up yeah i, I love how mad he gets when like People call him lazy, even though he's, like, so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Marty McFly reaction. It's really funny. Now we're just um, repeating lines from Psycho Goreman. Yeah, everybody watch Psycho Goreman. It's, like, seven bucks. It's money well spent. Yeah. Um, also, you don't even have to spend money on this if you have HBO Max. But my Spotlight Showcase recommendation of 2021 is 1995's Highlander, The Final Dimension. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I saw the trailer for this movie when I saw Demon Knight, and I remember it was like this and The Hunted, and I was like, does every movie have Christopher Lambert in it now? <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing the trailer for it, and I was like, I tucked it away. I'm like, one day I will watch Highlander, The Final Dimension. But the problem with it is, like, I never want to watch Highlander or Highlander 2. Right. So You don't really need to. This though, time right? I was just like, I don't know, because I just went straight to Final Dimension one night, like in January, and it's so much fun. And I just, I, it's real dumb, obviously, but it's like everything I want in a fantasy movie. It's like with the sword fighting and the piercings and sex and awkward leading men and garish lighting and rock music and instrumental Dr. Field good versions. What a picture. <laughs> <laughs> It's been years since I saw it. Um, I remember Mario Van Peebles, like, making some choices. Yeah, he's a ham. He is a bit of a ham. Um, And I don't remember much else about it, honestly. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's in my old age where, like, all of the irony is kind of sanded off of me, where I think, like, Christopher Lambert is kind of awesome, whereas before I would reject it. Um, I don't know if you listen to the We Hate Movies podcast, but they do an excellent Christopher Lambert impression, and it cracks me up every single time they do it. I remember the sex scene with him and Deborah Kara Unger as well. Yeah, yeah. That's back when they had sex in movies. <laughs> in Highlander movies, no less. In Highlander movies, yep. I weirdly uh, do want to watch Highlander 2 more often than I should, because I keep thinking, like, I'm going to learn something about it or I'm going to understand it because 
there's the theatrical cut and the renegade cut, and I keep thinking that, like, somewhere in these differences is a good movie. But I, I don't, like, watch it hardly ever. Yeah, the renegade cut is free on YouTube, so I'm probably going to watch that right. next, and then I'll backpedal into the original, and hopefully that's the crown jewel. We'll see. Have you ever seen any of them? No, this oh, is my okay, first. Oh, okay, okay. See, I thought you yeah. just meant you didn't feel like rewatching the first, the the first two, but no, this is a blind spot for me, just yeah, because. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like when Highlander came out, I was pretty young, so like it wasn't on my radar, and I would have had to like catch up to it. Right. So. Um, and then one other sci-fi movie I'll mention that I watched last night was uh, Synchronic, which was from 2020. Right. And it's the new Benson and Moorhead movie, and they did Spring, which I've seen, and The Endless, which I have not seen. Um, and I really liked it. It's very grounded sci-fi. It's not like pretentious sci-fi, like a primer or something like that. <laughs> I've never seen primer. Like, or like, you can't follow it. Um, it's like pretty straightforward, but it's clever and it's really original. And I think Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan are really good together. And they're, they're <laughs> these paramedics who like are going to all the, these, you know, uh, to pick up all these people who like, are, are, you know, ODing on this synthetic drug. And then there's the mystery behind what's going on with the synthetic drug. And um, there's like one detail in it that I, it's towards the end that I'm, I won't give away, but like, it really kind of put me off the movie a little bit. Like I really didn't like it, but all in all, like 95% of the movie is good. And I would definitely recommend it. It's one of those movies that like kind of was in theaters, like, in the fall during the pandemic, but like, this is the first time it's been available on VOD. So for, you know, five bucks that I paid to rent it, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I think it's at Redbox too, which I would venture out to go get it at Redbox if I could get out of my driveway right now, but we are sadly snowed in. Yeah. Um, if you do plan to see the endless and I do recommend it to a degree, um, you also need to rewatch or watch their first movie, Abs Resolution. Resolution. Yeah, Resolution. Yep. The two kind of connect, okay. so I would recommend watching yeah. Resolution and then watching The Endless. Okay. Yeah, it was it was cool to see them like kind of working upwards in scale from like what I saw them in spring. So it's exciting to see kind of like that up that trajectory for these guys. Is Jamie Dornan good? Is this like a Robert Pattinson situation where I thought so. Once we take him out of that terrible franchise, he's allowed to be a good actor. Yeah. I, I, I don't think he does anything like superlative necessarily, but he's, he's definitely like not a detriment to the movie. He's, he's pretty good. All right. I'll take it. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I do. I do think it's one of those, you know, Dakota Johnson situations where it's like, Oh, she's a good actress. She's just in terrible material. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I've got a couple that I can talk about. We covered the little things, so I don't have to talk about my least favorite movie of the year so far. Uh, <clears throat> I think, like you, Psycho Gorman is my favorite movie of the year so far, but I've probably only seen two 2021 movies, so we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Still uh, counts. Still counts, yeah. We forgot to talk about I Do Not Care for Hunky Boys. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> or, but then he does like hunger. Or do I? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a funny movie. Anyway, yeah. um <laughs> I think we texted my favorite like side character is the guy who's like the brain in the jar. Yeah. Yep. Well, Anything on pla- on planet Grayskull or whatever right. it is. Gorax is, is or uh, not. Yeah. It's not Gorax, but it's something like that. Um, yeah, no, it's all amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So we watched uh, The Kid Detective, which stars Adam Brody as kind of like a... It reminded me a lot of Mystery Team, only it's not a comedy. It's like Mystery Team played a lot more straight where when he was a kid, he was this famous detective in his town because he solved the case of the missing lunch money or something. And now he's mm-hmm. grown up and kind of burned out and uh, a murder case comes to him. And he's obviously way out of his depth in terms of solving a murder. That's like the first question that everybody asks him when he says he's working on a case. Like, how many murders have you solved? Um but in terms of being like a neo-noir, uh, it's really good. It would make a really good double feature with something like The Long Goodbye. Adam Brody's really good. I always like seeing him show up and stuff. And uh, it's a really good role for him. And uh, it is, you know, appropriately kind of dark and cynical about the world. Uh, elements of Chinatown in it. Um, not that it's as good as Chinatown, but, you know... Uh, I recommend it. It's 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 just now I think available for streaming. Yeah, I've heard enough people recommend it that it's made me more interested in it. I finally watched the trailer for it and it looked I got I definitely got the mystery team vibe from it, but that's not bad cuz I I do like mystery team a lot. Yeah, mystery team's good, but it's definitely kind of a wacky comedy and this is not. Oh, sure. I texted Rosalie yeah. when I was when we were watching it and I said, "Hey, you love film noir, you would probably like this." And I think she watched it last night and really liked it, so. Nice. Yeah. So that was good. It's nice when a recommendation goes over cuz it's always disappointing when you that's why i often don't recommend stuff because i'm so afraid that i'm gonna tell people to watch something and they're gonna be like oh yeah no it wasn't for me like oh shit sorry i i stopped recommending things after um it was like one evening i watched in the valley of violence after we watched it at like the chicago critics festival yeah and everybody liked it and then when it came out on VOD, I was with uh, my mom and my dad, and I was like, hey, you like Westerns? We should watch this. And, like, I could feel her disliking of the movie. <laughs> like, it was palpable in the room. And it made – it kind of ruined the movie for me, and I'm just like, oh, never again. Never again <laughs> am I recommending anything to anyone. We did uh, – I did, like, two weeks on Westerns in my film class, and so I showed, like, a classic – Western, I might have shown like Yojimbo or something like that because I was doing like Eastern Western and Western Western. Uh, and then for the Western Western, I showed In a Valley of Violence, and it was like their favorite movie they saw all semester. It went over really, really well. That's good. Which is kind of a surprise because uh, it's quirky, but it went over very well. Yeah. Travolta's very funny in that movie. He is, yeah. I wish that he had uh, more parts like that. Yeah. And I wish Ty West would make another movie. He, uh, I I just read something where like he's set up to do his next movie. It's going to be another horror movie. All right. So hopefully that comes out this year. We'll see. We'll see. Yep. Um, 
Erica and I watched The Climb. It was something that she had read about. It was not on my radar at all. Uh, I think it's another 2020 movie. And so she had asked if we could watch it, and we rented it on VOD. It is just about two friends. It's written by both the stars. It's directed by one of them. And they're playing kind of fictionalized versions of themselves. And it sort of charts the years of their friendship, starting when one is about to get married. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that's the basic premise. It, it's kind of told through like eight or nine long scenes, essentially. Uh, a lot of the scenes are done in one take, so it's a little bit show-offy at times in terms of the direction. It's a little bit up its own ass, but not in a distracting way. Um, and I thought it was really strong. I thought it was really funny and had some very honest things to say about friendship and about how we change as we get older and, you know, what happens to us when we kind of lose our way. Um, but I really recommend it. I thought it was really good. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know too much about it. Is it about like people on like cyclists or it, something? It starts with them. The whole opening sequence is them on bikes. So I think the marketing is kind of like here they are on bikes, but it's not, yeah. they're not cyclists. It's not really about them being cyclists at all. It's just the opening gotcha. of the movie. Okay. Um, and then last, uh, my Tony Scott rewatch is very slow because. I've been watching all these canon movies and stuff for podcasts and stuff. Uh, but we did rewatch Enemy of the State about a week ago, uh, which you, I think, had texted me and said, that's your favorite Will Smith, yes? Yeah. Um, I liked it. I don't think I had seen it since 1998. We went to see it opening weekend. It was like the second movie that Erica and I ever saw together, like just the two of us. So it holds a special place in my heart, obviously. And I don't think I had seen it since then. I liked it. It was amazing how much, <clears throat> because obviously a lot of it is very dated. You know, they're looking for videotapes and uh, it's it's not pre-internet, but it's more or less pre-internet. And yet it yep. still predicts so many things about the modern world in terms of our lack of privacy and our ability to monitor and record everywhere we go. Um, it's, it's a little, I thought at times it swings a little Michael Bay, like a lot of the Regina King stuff I thought felt like out of a Michael Bay movie. And I don't mean that as a compliment. Um, yeah. but this I was Bruckheimer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I came to the realization that I might like Tony Scott better when he's not working with Bruckheimer, but there's certainly Bruckheimer, Tony Scott collaborations that I do like, like Deja Vu or Crimson Tide or something like that. Um, but I can feel the Bruckheimer in this movie, but I mean, it's worth watching just for the cast. Cause every single person that shows up is like, Oh my gosh, look who it is. Oh my gosh. There's so-and-so there's Seth Green wearing yellow sunglasses. Um, <laughs> yeah. All of the, I, like, hacker characters are famous, you know, except for Ian Hart, I guess. He's not a big name, but if you're a Backbeat fan, naturally, you're like, there's Ian Hart. Yep. Yeah. I, that movie, I love it, but it also kind of makes me a little bit sad. Because it gives me a look at what career I wanted Will Smith to have after Enemy of the State, which is I wanted him to have his Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan run. Okay. I wanted to have, like... 
he was the lead in the grown up movies, like right. the Paramount movies. And it never happened. And I'm just like, oh, that's who you could have been. But whatever. He's a man of horrible taste in, in projects. <laughs> it's amazing that he's as big a star as he is with as poor of judgment as he has shown, you know, especially in the last 20 years or so. Because I think early on, up until Wild Wild West, he was picking really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's... um. He's got the same, he's like the action or drama version of Adam Sandler, really, where it's like everything's based off of that goodwill of, no pun intended, of <laughs> um, the early projects. And then every once in a while, he'll pepper in a good movie, but like it's very few and far between. Well, I, I did not see Gemini Man, so this, it may be the answer to this question, but what would you say was the last like good Will Smith movie? Oh, good lord! I was hoping that you wouldn't put me on the spot I'm like this. Very sorry. Uh, give me riff for like thirty seconds. Okay, because uh, I can name a lot of bad Will Smith movies, like Collateral right. Beauty and Seven Pounds. I and... take it back. He hasn't made a good movie in <laughs> let me see many years. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess Bad Boys for Life is no good. Enough. <laughs> no. I mean, it's fine. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but um, it's not going to count as a good Will Smith movie. Uh, I didn't see Spies in Disguise. Gemini Man's bad. Aladdin's bad. Bright's bad. Collateral oh, Beauty. Is... <laughs> oh God! Aladdin Collateral sucks. Beauty is like I don't even know what to describe that. Um, I listened to a podcast on Collateral Beauty so that I wouldn't have to see it, and I couldn't believe no. what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah, it's somebody was had a P tape. For, <laughs> um, Suicide Squad was bad. Concussions bad. This is bad. Um, Winter's Tale I never saw. After Earth is bad. Men in Black Three. Men in Black Three is the last good Will Smith movie. All right, what year was that? Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. All right, so almost ten years. Yeah, and he had Seven Pounds, which is an abomination. <laughs> Hancock is pretty bad. Hancock is not his, great. I think his like okay run ended with I Am Legend because that Pursuit of Happiness, Hitch, and yeah, those are I kind Robot of all like all the okay. same. Yeah, that's those are all like yeah. the same level of quality. Like not the worst, but not what I would I wouldn't go to bat really for any of them. No, well. Although I think I had a magic screening of Hitch when I was on vacation and I was I watched it in a hotel room on TBS. That's the way to watch Hitch. (laughs) I think that's what it was made for. It bypassed theaters completely and just went straight to TBS at two in the afternoon on a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hitch. (laughs) Want to just talk about Hitch? I mean, we might as well. It has a lot of similarities with the movies we are talking about. This is true. Um, what was Vance Munson was the character uh, that Jeffrey Donovan played. And he was like, he's like power steering, power driving Vance Munson. And I'm like, that's a line in your movie. Really? In what, what movie is this? Hitch. I don't remember this. And I don't remember Jeffrey Donovan being in Hitch. Yeah. He's the, he's like the real heel guy that like, Will Smith tries to help, but then he finds out that Vance Munson's just in it to get laid. Uh, and he's, and Hitch is like, that's not what my mantra is about. That's right. Like, Hitch's motives are pure. Yeah, Hitch's motives are super pure. 
Um, also, that reminds me of um, I was at my cousin's wedding back in like 2006 or 2007, and uh, my cousin's wife's sister was the maid of honor, and she did a speech at the reception, and she just did a monologue from Hitch. <laughs> And she passed it off like it was her own. For real. And everybody was just like, and everybody was like, this is amazing. And then I just was drunk and I was like, this is from Hitch. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that takes some balls. Some ball, yeah. You couldn't pull anything past. And circa 2008 inebriated Adam Risky. No, you couldn't do that. Not when it comes to Hitch. I suffered. I suffered no fools. I was like Denzel. <laughs> um, that movie, the little things should have been called Overbite and Underbite. <laughs> I was so pissed. It was called The Little Things, and it took place in the early 90s, and there was no Little Things by Bush placement anywhere. It had little reason to take place in the early 90s, except, again, no cell phones. I think it's just because that's when he wrote the movie. But, like, that seems like something you could have easily updated. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. And nobody was driving, like, Honda Accords or anything. Everybody had, like, the same car. Did yeah. There, there was no, like, period detail at all, really. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Everything what looked up? like now. But that's a bad movie. Yeah, it's not good. No. Mm -mm. Let's talk about The Doors. Yeah. You had tweeted out that this was one of your Holy Grail movies. Yeah. And I think I misled people because they probably thought I was talking about Last Crusade or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have thought Draft Day, but we already did a show on Draft Day. Yeah, and I know you and Eric did a show on Monty Python and the Holy Grails. So right. That's that. Yeah. Yeah, um, The Doors is, if I were to make a list of movies that have most fascinated me and I don't know why in my life, The Doors would be on that list. And it's something that I've always wanted to talk about at length with somebody, but never have. And um, I think it's so part and parcel to like these subgenres that draw me in, and I don't know why. One is the rock bio pick and one is the drug addiction movie i am on a very different page because i hate <laughs> drug addiction movies yeah and i enjoy rock biopics when they don't just follow every familiar beat and this one kind of does mm -hmm. um it's not you know 100 percent walk the line or whatever but it does follow a lot of the same beats as a lot of rock biopics particularly ones that are about the downfall of this particular rock star as the doors is. I think this one has like a tunnel vision in the way that a lot of them don't like, I feel like this one is very much like first person point of view, almost like VR look at like somebody circling the drain in a way that, whereas in say walk the line, for example, again, like that's more sanitized and kind of more window dressing and it's a, a movie built to earn actors Oscars. And I think The Doors isn't – there's a lot of meat to the stew other than just the Val Kilmer performance, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does make sense, although we should talk about the Val Kilmer performance. I don't know if we need to start there, but yeah. I don't know that Val Kilmer gets enough credit for this performance. Like, I don't even know that I think of Jim Morrison when I think of The Doors. I think I think of Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. Because I took that note down, too. I completely agree with you. Yeah. He, he so transforms into this part, and... You know, Val Kilmer is an actor who's like always good when he shows up and stuff, made a lot of bad movies, was notoriously difficult to work with, which I thought was interesting as he's making the doors about this guy who's notoriously difficult to work with and kind of a selfish prick and puts people off. And I know Val Kilmer had that reputation for being kind of that same way. So there's almost this meta commentary that's going on as he's acting out this role. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Val Kilmer should have had a giant career and he had a fine career and obviously where things are now is, you know, kind of sad because he did get sick and more or less lost his voice. Um, but he's so on another planet good in this movie that I feel like we should be talking about it so much more than we do. We give Rami, Rami Malek the Oscar for lip syncing yeah. Freddie Mercury and we completely overlook Val Kilmer in The Doors, who's not only doing his own singing, but also giving a great performance on top of it. Yeah, and it's it's a difficult performance, too, because Jim Morrison, from what I can... So, I, I actually, I want to get back to... Before I talk about the Kilmer performance, I kind of want to get back to what you said about how you think of Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison before you think of Jim Morrison when you think of The Doors usually. That's how I was too because I think this was more – like I, I I heard The Doors a lot when I was growing up um, before I saw the movie. But that was filtered through like the Rock of Fire Explosion band that showed his <laughs> playing Light My Fire and it's like a dog playing the drums and like <laughs> – mimicking it and he kind of is doing a john dems densmore mixed with jim morrison thing um which kudos to to showbiz pizza for playing shit like that for kids i love it um and then also my parents listened to the 60s or the oldie station in chicago all the time so like i would hear music like the doors quite often um and then the doors the movie came out and i was just like okay you know I think of Val Kilmer. I picture that in my brain as Jim Morrison. So I went back and I watched um, a concert at the Hollywood Bowl from 1968. It was on IMDb TV for free. And then I watched the When You're Strange documentary that Tom DeSillo did because I just wanted to see like Jim Morrison in the wild, so to speak, just yeah. to kind of get a grasp on it. And that comparison to what Val Kilmer's doing. It's like Val Kilmer was possessed, like in a way that we want to give, like, or that Jim Carrey wants to give himself credit for with Andy yeah, Kaufman. Yeah, for sure. Like, no, like Val Kilmer <laughs> did it first with Jim Morrison. And um, the thing that I kept coming back to is he's so good in this movie at, being crazy, but then also centering the craziness so that the movie doesn't feel, it feels just the right amount for me of out of control. Not where like, it feels like the movie is 
getting away from the director like U-turn or something like that. It feels <laughs> like this composed amount of crazy like Natural Born Killers or JFK or The Doors. Well, I struggle so much with this movie because, I mean, I think I come down on the side of liking it because I admire so much about it. Because like you, I've seen it a bunch of times. I find it very watchable despite being very unpleasant and being about subject matter that I generally don't like, which is, you know, drug use and uh, self-destruction. These are not things that I tend to like to watch in movies. Um, But I watched it this time especially, like really trying to understand Oliver Stone's take. Like what is his opinion of The Doors? And I think he buys into... Jim Morrison's bullshit a little more than I do. Uh, yes. And so I left the movie wondering like, well, who's more full of shit, Jim Morrison or Oliver Stone? I tried <laughs> to listen to the Oliver Stone commentary, hoping that it would give me some insight. And uh, I didn't make it very far because it's one of those commentaries where it's just like, we took a helicopter here and uh, went right over the cliff. Um, it's, it's just weirdly whispered into a microphone, Oliver Stone, like he's a fascinating director. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I really like some of his movies and then some of his other movies. I'm just like, no, I'm not into this at all. The doors is one of the movies of his that I do like, I guess, even though I, I was like rolling my eyes half the time as I was watching it this time thinking like, Oh God, he really is buying into this nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. Or sometimes just the clumsiness of how he wants to get certain things across, like Ray Manzarek telling Jim, turn around, Jim, let him in. I'm just like, no, that's really (laughs) heavy-handed and stupid. Um, I forget where I was going with this, but just Oliver Stone's opinion of Jim Morrison and The Doors, I feel like he is buying into a lot of the nonsensical kind of mysticism this fatalistic mentality of like, I'm doomed to die at a young age. And I was watching it and I don't want to rewrite a movie that already exists or tell a director, here's how you should have done it. But I, I, I was like, would this be a more interesting movie if it wasn't, as you said, so sort of laser focused on Jim Morrison's experience and was rather an outsider's look at, Jim Morrison. What if this was movie? Uh, what if this was a movie told from the point of view of Ray Manzarek about mm-hmm. his friendship with Jim Morrison and about watching Jim Morrison self destruct from the outside? Would it give the audience more of a point of view? Uh, would it give us? Would it ground us a little bit more in this experience? I don't know necessarily, but I just was like. This movie pushes all its chips in on Jim Morrison, and so we are doomed to sink with that ship, and it can be very unpleasant. Yeah, I think that uh, Oliver Stone really, like, my take on his, his opinion of the whole thing is, I think The Doors almost, as a band, is incidental to him. I think, like, he loves the mystique of Jim Morrison so much, like whether it's the poetry or the rock star way of life or just the self-destruction and the fatalistic thing that you'd mentioned. 
I think that's something that Oliver Stone is obsessed with. And like, that's as kind of a representation of that. I think that that's what we're, I think it works in the movie. However, I think I agree with you. And one of my questions for you was, is kind of just you as a person, like what is your take on Jim Morrison? Because for me, when I listen to the Doors music or I watch the documentary When You're Strange or I watch the Hollywood Bowl concert, I think that Jim Morrison is sort of like he's a part of a formula of like a rock band where it's like you need this wild card to it. And he's a charismatic frontman, no question. Maybe a good singer. I don't know. It doesn't try. I know a lot of people think that he is. I don't think that he necessarily is. Um but the rest of the band is like where it's at for me. Like the music is where it's at, not so much like his persona and the lyrics. So when I see the movie, I'm at it from a distance a little bit because the thing that I take away from it more so than sex, drugs and rock and roll isn't Jim Morrison. Great is the line of dialogue that he has with Meg Ryan, where she says, why are you doing this to me? And he says, cause you're in the room, right? It's like, he's a bully. Right. He's a narcissistic, self-loathing, suicidal bully. And he just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right music and the right movements and stuff like that. And he maybe got a little more lucky than he was talented. I do think he's very talented. I do think um, in terms of, you know, I think in terms of being a charismatic front man, that that is a, you can't fake that you know it's unfortunate that he saw that all this other baggage had to come along with it that in order to do that he also had to drink and do drugs and be an asshole that he bought into the persona of a rock star instead of just acted as a rock star but i'm with you in terms of the music um watching that when you're strange documentary my favorite thing about watching it was just watching the other musicians play in some of the live performances watching john densmore play drums and stuff that was really exciting to me and gave me even new appreciation for the doors i think i've always liked the doors and i know maybe i'm not supposed to or maybe that's not a popular sentiment i don't know i don't know what the what pop culture's opinion is of the doors um my my thinking, and we'll talk more about the music probably at the end of the episode, but my thinking was that I liked their like hits. I liked all their popular songs, and they have an amazing number of popular songs. They have so many hits. Yeah. Uh, but that I'm less en- enamored with like their deep cuts and B-sides and stuff. So I've been trying to listen to some of their album cuts, and it turns out that I was pretty much right. Like I generally like their hits more than the other stuff. Um, But watching the documentary and watching this movie, because it's an interesting choice that this movie makes to be scored mostly by Doors music. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of it being just music that we watch them record or watch them play live, a lot of times just their songs will play in the background of a scene. And sometimes it's about scoring what's happening in the scene. Sometimes it's very on the nose. Like when we see Meg Ryan and we start hearing love street on the soundtrack. Um, But I initially I bristled against that. I was like, what a weird choice, Oliver Stone. Why would you do that? And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, this is meant to be an experience. This is meant to really 
immerse us in the world of the doors. And one of the ways you do that is by packing in as much of their music as possible. So I think I come down on the side of liking that choice. Yeah, I do too. Um, Cause like one of the things that I, I really appreciate sometimes when I'm watching a movie is I'll just sit there and I'll catch myself thinking like, how do people make something like this? Like where it's just like this combination of, elements that somehow it turns into this kind of magic cinema <laughs> and like the one scene that i had with that that sounded so douchey i'm sorry i sounded like oliver stone um <laughs> when <laughs> you gotta go right up I, to the microphone and whisper it though yeah. magic of cinema <laughs> this is the magic of um, cinema yeah give me some dust anyways <laughs> no jim no yeah, what we're doing is uh, Patrick put me on to a Ben Stiller show skit of the Oliver Stone theme park, which everybody needs to watch on YouTube. It's amazing. Um, so the scene where I had that happen, where it was kind of like this coalescing of like the performance and Val Kilmer and the music and everything and just like the chaoticness of the movie was the Miami concert where like <clears throat> it turns into this giant, yeah, like conga line <laughs> like the grim reaper behind him and like the world's longest microphone cord the world's longest microphone cord wilhelm screams when a stage collapses <laughs> like i just can't believe like they were able to film something like this it just seems so out of control in an exciting way and i think that yeah just kind of making the music so you know just kind of of a piece with the rest of the movie is it's great i mean like it feels like you're listening to the, to an album and like kind of almost like coming up with your own visualization from it just by listening so and that miami concert is, is a great example of like how did they do this you know um, yeah. because movies like this generally don't get made anymore and if they do we don't get scenes like that on that scale um, it's the CGI crowd from Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, exactly. It's We don't get an actual room full of actual people, extras, all participating in this thing. And that's one of the areas where the movie really excels is in sort of capturing the period. And I think that's you know a big part of what drew Oliver Stone to it as well, that as a, as a soldier in Vietnam, he was listening to The Doors, was drawn into their music, was drawn into that drug culture and wanted to recreate that on screen. And I think he does a pretty incredible job of doing it. The period detail is amazing. The scale is amazing. Um, and the, Just the look of the movie is... Oh my gosh, like, the Robert Richardson photography is so great. It's just, yeah, it's funny because... I almost like it more the sleazier I see it. Like when I saw it on like VHS, I was just like, this is like watching like somebody's hallucination and like it looks it still looks amazing like you know watching it in hd but like the grimier it feels almost kind of lends itself a certain uh i don't know just kind of vibe to it that i that i enjoy well and the documentary makes the point of saying that jim morrison was that he loved the attention that he was maybe insecure um that it was a little bit of an act. Mm -hmm. And I think the Oliver Stone 
mythos isn't that thing. I don't think, you know, I think Val Kilmer's performance gives us some indication that Jim Morrison is insecure, gives us some indication that he's putting on a show for everybody around him, like you said, because you're in the room. Um, but that, that again, that Jim Morrison was sort of fated to be this rock star poet uh, from the time that he saw, you know, some indigenous people on the highway as a kid. And it's uh, sort of, he was infused with their spirit and carried that spirit into the music industry. Um, I think Oliver Stone just buys into Jim Morrison's bullshit a little more than I do. <laughs> yeah, so I have a question for you about that. I didn't pick this up from anything that I've seen or read about Jim Morrison, but like is all the native American influence stuff all from Oliver Stone or was this like any part of Jim Morrison's life really other than he saw a fender bender when he was a child of like native American people in their cars. I haven't done enough research to know for sure. There was a book that I wanted to read in high school. Cause when this movie came out, I wasn't in high school. I was in like junior high. And I was obsessed. I wanted to see this movie so bad. Um, and I wanted to read the Jim Morrison biography. No one here gets out alive. I was like, I bought the soundtrack. Um, I used to like listen to break on through over and over again in my bedroom. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I never did read no one here gets out alive. So I don't know how much of the native American stuff is, accurate to me it seems like some oliver stone bullshit yeah because he's done it in so many other movies right so i feel like it's just kind of his motif more than anybody else's but yeah he adds it like there's a concert where there's like a giant pit, like fire pit and like people dancing in circles and then there's hallucinations of like ray manzarek is seeing like native americans on stage dancing with jim morrison and it's yeah. like what are we doing but like by that <laughs> point you're either in or you're out on this movie so like i kind of just was like it's like you have like a ladle it's like one more scoop of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> i weirdly have the ability to be in and then out <laughs> like i'm in i'm in and then he and Kathleen Quinlan are like doing their tribal dance to Carmina Burana and I'm out, you know, I'm like, this is some Oliver yeah. Stone bullshit right here. And then I'm back in, in the next scene when it's back to him and Meg Ryan in bed, you know, and trying to have a conversation and, uh, the Oliver Stoneness of it at times becomes a little much for me. Yeah. I, I think Oliver Stone is so funny. Cause like everybody, <laughs> at some now i kind of think he's a little dangerous but like i also think like not in a good way not in like a provocative way right, like right, I think right. he's reckless but um <clears throat> when i was growing up like i knew of platoon i knew of born on the fourth of july i hadn't seen them yet because i was too young i think the doors was the first oliver stone movie i saw because it would be on cable like in 92 and i would have been 10 i would have watched it um but I remember at the time, because this came out the same year as JFK, like a lot of people like kind of were thinking that he wasn't full of shit yet. Like they didn't get to that point yet. And I remember um, just like over the years, like thinking, oh, like taking it at face value, I guess, a little bit more than I should have because I was young and impressionable. And I was like, oh, well, that's 
you know, how it went with JFK and that's how it went with Nixon and everything like that. And, um, I, I don't know. He's, he's so interesting. He almost feels like the perfect person to make a movie about Jim Morrison because they have the same thing where it's like, it starts in maybe this honest place. Like, cause I think platoon and born on the 4th of July are very, um, straightforward heartfelt you know real gritty obviously but like very personal movies and vulnerable movies and then his later movies took on this bravado and this mystique that i think like a jim morrison did where you know he got to like the fame and then he got to like it a little bit too much and then he pushed back against it. And then like, now you're in this no man's land of like, who am I? And like, what is my relationship to anything? Right. So other than self-destruction. So I think like, you know, I, as you were saying like earlier, you know, if they shot the movie from like Ray Manzarek's point of view or something like that, kind of looking at Jim Morrison almost as like a supporting character, they would have had to have a different filmmaker. Cause I think so much of what works about the movie in its own way is Oliver Stone's fidelity with Jim Morrison. Interesting. What was the last good Oliver Stone movie? Was it Any Given Sunday? Uh, probably, yeah. Because, I, I don't know, I think like even his bad movies are kind of watchable, because I'm, I'm thinking of like Snowden, I thought was... Oh, I never great. saw Snowden. It's, I'm sorry, wait a minute, but Nicolas Cage is in it. I know, I haven't seen it yet. That's surprising. Something about um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance in the trailer <laughs> was putting me off. Yeah. Well, I could see what you're saying I'm there. Edward Snowden. <laughs> um, yeah, another Oliver Stone-Nicolas Cage joint that I haven't seen is World Trade Center. I haven't seen that yet. Okay. I did see World Trade Center once. Um, it's not as hard to watch as I would have thought it would be because yeah. it's very much more like a patriotic movie movie than anything else. Um, but any given Sunday, I think is his last, like one that I love. And then Alexander, I've never finished world trade center is good, but I've never gone back to W I thought was okay. Wall street money never sleeps is like, <laughs> why watch it when wall street exists? Yeah. Um, Savages is bad and Oof. Snowden is okay. Okay. Yeah. But I like, um, I don't know, I, I still will give him a chance because Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, and Nixon, and Any Given Sunday, I like all of those that's to some quite degree. a run. I haven't seen Heaven and Earth. I think that's the only one in there that I haven't, I haven't seen, seen. Talk Radio. I still Talk Radio Rules. Okay, I need to maybe watch that today because that, yeah, that's one of my uh, my blind spots. I remember when this movie came out, I was just as excited as you were for it. And my mom took me to see King Ralph. God damn it. And the doors was right there. And I was like, <laughs> and my mom was like, what do you want to see? And I said, the doors are never ending story too. And she's like, you're too young for the doors. And I'm never taking you to see never ending story too. What else? And I'm like, King Ralph. <laughs> Um, this came out in March 91. I'm trying to think of what I saw instead. I thought it was Silence of the Lambs, but Silence of the Lambs was about a month before this. 
No, I looked at the box office. That was still number one the weekend The Doors came out. The Doors was number two. Okay, so maybe I did see Sounds of the Lambs instead. Yeah. Um, because my other guess was Toy Soldiers, but I think that came out later. That didn't come out till April. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I must have seen Silence of the Lambs instead of The Doors, which isn't a bad trade-off. It's not quite King Ralph. No. <laughs> Did you see The the Doors in theaters or was it on No, video? I didn't see it until it hit pay-per-view and then I convinced my mom to let me rent it and recorded it off gotcha. of pay-per-view so I could watch it again and again. Which I did for some reason. <laughs> does this movie freak you out a little bit? Because it does for me. Because I feel like the cast is insane. And when I say that, I don't mean just like, look at this insane cast. I mean, like, look, this cast is full <laughs> it's of, a cast of crazy people. Yeah. Like, how is Tom Sizemore not in this movie? <laughs> well, because Michael Madsen is and they can't occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. And your boy is in but, it. Yeah. Who? Uh, what's his name from The Crow? Uh, oh, Wincott. Wincott, yeah. Yeah. And he plays like the voice. You know your movie. He's is like a normal guy. He's the voice of reason. <laughs> right. I don't know, guys. Maybe we should listen to Michael Wincott. Yeah. The Wincott character actually, like one thing I will say is I think doing the show prep that I did for this with the concert and the documentary. And then I also bought... Um, Months ago, I bought the Val Kilmer autobiography and I read the chapter about the doors and he was talking about how he was so into it that he like basically recorded like a, a double album of him singing as Jim Morrison of door songs. And the guy who did the producing for it was the was the guy, Paul something or other. I forgot what the producer's name was, but the guy that Michael Wincott played. Yeah. And um, Michael Wincott's uh, or the the real life counterpart of the Wincott uh, character was like breaking down, like hearing Val Kilmer approximate Jim Morrison. And I kind of took that into the movie with me. So like when I'm watching like the very brief sections of Michael Wincott, especially where he's like doesn't want Jim Morrison to be like this train wreck that he has to watch again, like Janis Joplin. I was just like, Oh, that's like, I felt so bad for him and everything, but yeah, that, uh, yeah. Wincott's my boy. I, I think he's in talk radio also, isn't he? I believe you are correct. Another scene that scares me is the Andy Warhol stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk to, <clears throat> I just started choking everybody. I'm sorry. Um, the you can talk to God on it. Yeah, yeah. And then like uh, Kyle McLaughlin's like, these people are vampires, man. I'm like, yes, that's what they are. They are vampires. <laughs> Gary, get out of there. Get out of there. So, um, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm choking. And then what? Uh, I'll, I'll riff for a second. <laughs> Thanks. Um, TriStar, Carol Co. logos, doesn't get any better than this. Like, I saw somebody actually write this on Twitter, ironically, before we started. But somebody <laughs> wrote, like, when you, it was a picture of, like, the Pegasus starting to run. And it was like, when you saw this as a kid, you knew some shit was going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, damn right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely puts me back in a place of, like happier times in terms of movie watching, you know, um, 
those studios and the kinds of movies that were coming out in the early nineties. Like I'm sure some of it is just nostalgia for liking this movie back in 1991. But I also think there's a lot about it. You had alerted me to the Ebert Cisco and Ebert review. Yeah. So I watched it and uh, it's very interesting because I'm, I'm agreeing with both of them. Siskel is kind of saying like, I really liked the period detail. It brought me back to the sixties. It's this ambitious achievement. Ebert is saying it's very effective. It made me feel bad and therefore I don't like it. And I can see where both of them are coming from. Yeah, I, I definitely do too. And I kind of fall, I, I kind of go back and forth between his Ebert's opinion and Cisco's opinion. I think like as of today, I'm more in Cisco's opinion because when I am away from the movie, I don't think of how bad it makes me feel. I just want to be watching the Kilmer performance and listening to the music again. Yeah. And that, no, I that think makes sense is what keeps me coming back to it. Um, Ebert has in his written review, <laughs> He has a line that's stuck with me like every time I've watched the movie since I read the review, which was um, at the end of the movie where they show his gravestone and it's all like graffitied and every gravestone around headstone around it are, is graffitied too. And Ebert wrote, even in death, Jim Morrison is no fun to be around. <laughs> and Whenever I see that shot, I just think in my head, even in death, Jim Morrison is no fun to be yeah. around. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, such a such a okay. guiding principle of the movie, just that he's yeah. a miserable person to be around. And, and Val Kilmer is very good at getting that across. Um, that's why the casting of Meg Ryan is so interesting, because you watch the documentary and... Yeah you find out that like maybe Pam wasn't as big a part of his life as the doors would suggest in terms of even just being around for all of it. Um, I was shocked to learn that they were the original Pam and Jim. And now I want somebody to recut the office intro with uh, clips from the doors. So somebody get on that. Okay. I got to put a hat on your, the office joke. Okay. Because, when when Kilmer says at the beginning of the movie, Pam and Jim, I was just like, ding, ding, ding. And I thought of The Office also. Yeah. So I went a little bull goose crazy on this one. So I have a theory similar to my Ed and Lorraine Warren in The Family Man. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I think Pam, so Pamela Corson passed mm. away in 1974. Jenna Fisher was born in 1974. What? I think that. What? I think that um, that Pam on the office is the reincarnation of Pamela Corson <laughs> and that she was looking for her gym and she found it in Halpert. Wow. I yeah. mean, it's possible. Um, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> the, the casting of Meg Ryan is so interesting because on the one hand, I don't want to say like Pamela Corson was complicit in Jim Morrison's mm-hmm. behavior. Um, but she was maybe more of a participant than, I don't know, yeah. when, when I watch Meg Ryan in the role, you just, you don't, you don't want anything bad to ever happen to Meg Ryan. So you just want her to be as far away from him as possible. Like it's good casting in that Meg Ryan carries certain baggage with her and you're like, no, 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 Meg Ryan, you're too nice. You're too sweet. You're too good. You're too pure. 
Um, don't let him corrupt you. Don't let him give you these drugs. Don't let him ruin your duck. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. With with her in this movie, I feel like she's and to no fault of her own. I just think she's a weird fit for a for an Oliver Stone movie. She is for sure. Um, so I feel like in her scenes, she's kind of acting at the movie and not in the movie. Okay, almost. Okay. Um, but I think there's reasons <clears throat> for that. Like one is I read that um, Oliver Stone had like this weird relationship with like the parents of Pamela Corson because. She owned his poetry after Jim Morrison died. So then the, par- the parents got the poetry after Pamela Corson died. And apparently in order for Oliver Stone to get access to it, he needed to soften the representation of how Pamela Corson was portrayed in the okay. movie. Okay. And I think like casting a Meg Ryan is kind of almost like an appeasing yeah. Yeah. of casting choice. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, because the, there's rumors about, like, you know, she might have bought him the drugs that ended up killing him and stuff when they were in Paris and things like that. And, like, all of that stuff is just kind of, like, not in the movie. So um, I do agree with you. I think, like, she was more of a participant in right. things that were going on and right. not so much just, like, the put-upon girlfriend, wife. But um, Which is what the movie weird... kind of positions her as Yeah, in it's large part just by casting Meg Ryan. Yeah, it's it, it's not any fault of hers, but it, I never almost think of her at all when I'm thinking of this movie, unlike so many other Meg Ryan movies where she's such a a beacon, like, you know, it's <laughs> right. like ignore her. Um, but uh, yeah, um, if you saw a naked dude in the hallway like that in the middle of the night, I think I would have screamed. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that's always bothered me. Like, she should have been like, what, 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 what the fuck? <laughs> well, I, I, but does every performance get a little bit swallowed up in the orbit of the Val Kilmer performance? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think that he's kind of got, like, a Day-Lewis thing going on in this movie. And, again, part of that, I think, is true to what Oliver Stone is trying to say about Jim Morrison, you know, that that's what happened when you were in his orbit, you got swallowed up. But I do wish that like some of the band members in particular had been fleshed out a little bit more. Yeah, I agree with that. I know nothing about Robbie Krieger. I know nothing about John Dunsmore. I know a tiny bit about Ray Manzarek just based on Kyle MacLachlan's performance, but not really. I listened to a few interviews with Ray Manzarek before he died. Um, uh, after I watched the movie, he's, he's a really interesting guy to listen to, to stuff about like, you know, the history of the band with, but I agree with you. Like definitely got more from the, uh, the documentary when you're strange about the yeah. band. And it was so nice to like have that as context for watching the movie again. Yeah. It made me appreciate that a lot of the stuff in the movie is kind of factual. I mean, obviously, Oliver Stone takes a lot of dramatic license, but a lot of the events that are represented in the movie were things that actually happened, like the macing backstage and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish that this movie had a budget of maybe $5,000 more to buy better fake beards. <laughs> Erica's reaction to the fake beard was very funny. I wish you could have been here for it because she just was like, wait, what? That's 
that's supposed to be his beard? That's his beard. <laughs> and then when we saw the documentary, she thought his Jim Morrison's actual beard looked kind of like the fake one. She was like, maybe it was a good fake beard. I like Oliver Stone's fake beard as the film professor at the oh, beginning, boy. too. Oh, like, boy. What is that? And then uh, Whaley, Frank Whaley, I think, has a bad f- fake beard also. Yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, bad fake beards in the movie. Big month for Frank Whaley. This and career opportunities. Soon uh, coming soon to Blu-ray. By the way, yep, that's that's another movie where I I don't know I I've seen it like so many times that I can't say that I ever really liked it other than falling in love with Jennifer Connelly, right? Which I think is the reason that it has any kind of legacy. It two reasons: one, uh, you fall in love with Jennifer Connelly, and two, it taught me what Target was. This is true. Yeah, Target wasn't as ubiquitous as it was. I don't think we had them uh, here in Chicago yeah, at the time that yeah. Career Opportunities came out. Uh, career Opportunities came out on my birthday that year. Oh, my goodness. Was it, it your birthday movie that it year? It was, in fact, my birthday movie. My birthday movie that year was Drop Dead Fred. Which I still haven't seen, which I feel like we just talked about. You win. <laughs> that was Hudson Hawk. I should have just gone to see Hudson Hawk. Shoot. Yeah, I blew it. 91 was a hell of a year, man. 91, man. Yeah, even in March, bringing out the hits. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, another thing that made me want to watch this movie really bad was just the poster for it. It's so, like, he looks like Beast Man. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> like, like it Beast Man like from the cartoon like... or like Beast Man from the live action <laughs> like, movie? Either one. I mean, like, it looks like Willow 2. Like, Ooh. it's so lush and just, like, yeah. he's made of fire. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's so, funny because he doesn't, like, facially, he doesn't look that much like Jim Morrison. But no. you watch this movie and you're like, oh, he looks exactly like Jim Morrison. Yeah. You know who he looks like, like who Jim Morrison looks like more is Jim Carrey. Sure. I would say maybe Harry Hamlin. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but they got Harry Hamlin on the doors. <laughs> but again, Val Kilmer is so good that you walk away. His body language and just everything about him is so good that you walk away just saying like, oh, he's identical to Jim Morrison. <laughs> and he's yeah. not, but he's just such a force of nature in this movie. Yeah. So I got I got one question for you because I kind of want to like dig into this to try to figure it out a little bit. All right. I'm Although in. I'm not sure what it says about me. Why, as somebody who doesn't like drugs or take drugs, like, why do I like addiction movies as much as I do? I, I think don't it's... know. I have the opposite reaction. I don't like drugs. I don't take drugs. I am repelled by addiction movies. It's weird because, like, even when I was young, like, when Bright Lights Big City came out, mm. I was like, I can't wait to see my boy Michael <laughs> J. struggle with addiction. <laughs> Yeah, I don't... Uh... Like, clean and sober, I was just like, I gotta see that. And I was like, six. <laughs> Show me Beetlejuice hooked on Coke. Yeah, it was so weird. I'm not sure, like, what it is. I think maybe it's... Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze myself too much, but maybe it's kind of like one of the things about movies is you can kind of vicariously experience something without being experiencing it in okay. a in a dangerous way so maybe it's that <laughs> maybe it's the 
you know, human element of like 1% of you wants to see self-destruction. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, it's been a thing like where, like if I, I, I want to see all my favorite stars have addiction. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> what are uh, some of your favorite addiction movies? I got to look it up. Hold on. Okay. Cause I had, um, I was going to ask you, you know, is this better, worse than these so-and-so rock biopics? Oh, so I interesting. Have I love that. Go, I love but, this game. But I, I'm going to look up addiction movies okay. first. Because I'll do this for me. Is I'll it say its better. own Wikipedia-like subheading? Uh, no. Surprisingly, no. Let's see. I mean, I'm sure you could just Google movies about addiction and many will come up. Yeah. Um. Hold on one second. Okay. So, Addiction Movies Wiki. Oh, wow. There we go. All right. List of drug films. That's what I'm looking for. Here we go. <laughs> Jackpot. Jackpot. Oh, there's way too many. Jesus. Because they're like the 40-year-old virgin cannabis. I'm like, that's not what I'm looking Get for. Get out of here with that. I would. <laughs> that's a... So they say like. That movie took a weird turn when he got hooked on drugs. Yeah. 19. All right. Top drug movies. <laughs> I'm on my work computer. I hope they don't check this. Thing. <laughs> um, okay, the 25 best drug movies of all time, IMDb. Okay. There Requiem we go. For a dream. This is the... All right, Requ Requiem for a Dream is number one. Of course. Define Pulp best. Is like, no... what are we talking about, best? Yeah, I don't know. It's That's not a drug movie that I enjoy much. No. In quote, joy. Pulp Fiction, I don't think of as a drug movie. Pulp Fiction is has... not a drug movie even a little bit. Boogie Nights is not a drug movie. Get out of here with this shit. Wolf of Wall Street, I could say, I could see is sort of a drug movie, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm no. talking about like my favorite actors, like Michael J. Drug. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Um, Easy Rider, no. Train Spotting, of course. Train Spotting is really good. Okay, I like Train Spotting. Twenty One Grams, whatever. 21 Grams is not really a drug movie and is also not really a good movie. Scarface. That's, see, they, they're they're going in a different way. Like they've got like so like where a, a scene where a character takes drugs and they they can put it on this list basically. No, like Traffic, American Gangster. This isn't helping me. <laughs> no, it's really not. Basketball Diaries. See, I like Leo, so I want to see him on heroin. So there we go. <laughs> um. Half Nelson. I like Ryan Gosling, yeah. but I want to on crack cocaine and okay. other substances. So that's good. <laughs> this is a weird <laughs> side of you that I don't think I knew about this interest in the addiction movie. I don't know. Yeah. Go, it's something that I don't want to look into too deeply. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it stops me in my tracks when I see it. Like, I'm just like, Ooh, bright lights, big city. I'll watch that for the 15th time. I generally want to avoid them. I mean, I've seen a bunch of them, again, out of often out of like deference to the star. Like, oh, Ryan Gosling, he's good. I should see Half Nelson. So I see Half Nelson, but like I will never revisit Half Nelson. You know, same with Requiem for a Dream. I saw it once. I've never gone back to see it again. There's some that go too far for me, like Sid and Nancy. Like, I don't want any part of that again. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Better or worse than these rock biopics? All right, The Doors. Is it better or worse than... Nowhere Boy. It's better. Walk the Line. I like it better. 
Love and Mercy. Oof. Uh, I'll say better. La Bamba. I haven't seen La Bamba in such a long time. I'm going to say better, but that's probably unfair. Um, Sid and Nancy. Oh, gosh. Ty. Uh, Elvis with Kurt Russell. <laughs> um, better. The Buddy Holly story. Not as good. Yeah, I like Buddy Holly story better. Yeah. Uh, the Runaways. Better. Um, 24-hour party people. Uh, is that really a rock biopic? I mean... Not really. No. Um, Rocket Man. Uh... Follows a lot of the same beats as Rocket Man. Uh, I'll say it's better just because if you put the two in front of me, I would probably rather watch The Doors again. But Rocket Man was good. Yep. Uh, backbeat. Better. Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Not as good. <laughs> what? <laughs> JK. <laughs> Way better. Bohemian Rhapsody is the Where'd worst. My friend, where'd my friend PB go? Um, <laughs> great Balls of Fire. I love Great Balls of Fire, but it's better. Uh, Ray. Better. Control. Never saw Control. Control, I think, is better than The Doors. Okay, Control that, is amazing. That figures. Um, let's see here. Last Days. Never saw Last Days. I'm Not There. Love I'm Not There. I'm Not There is better. Get On Up. Get On Up. Never saw Get On Up. What's love got to do with it? Never saw what's love got to do with it. Straight out of Compton. Better. Eight Mile. Is that a biopic? It's on here. Uh, <laughs> Eight Mile's really good. Uh, I'd probably rather watch The Doors again. Uh, Amadeus. Amadeus is better. And Bird. Never saw Bird. Okay. I just rented Bird because I was watching a YouTube video where it was like a jazz musician judges the jazz and movies. And it, I was like, Oh, I need to watch bird. Yeah. It's a Clint Eastwood joint that I've never seen. Mm. It's also about a guy with addiction. <laughs> <laughs> also about an addict. So right up yeah. your alley. Right up my alley. Uh, were there, there any of those? Like addic- yeah. Were, were they there... only made a movie where it's like addiction mixed with wish master. <laughs> Um, were there any of those that you disagreed with? Uh, no, no. I mean, like, I think the doors is pretty high up there for me in terms of like, you put them in front of me, which would I want to watch? Yeah. First. Yeah. But, that's uh, kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. But I think if I was doing, you know, because I watched vanilla sky again recently, if I was doing like my own lucid dream, it would definitely be like, Adam, you really like addiction. Do you want that part of your lucid dream? And I'm like, no, you can leave that out. (laughs) (laughs) Just give me the weird mask. Yep, exactly. All right. And we were going to do top five door songs. Yeah. Chapters ready? I do have mine ready. And again, mine all basically come from the greatest hits. I wish I could surprise people with like some deep cuts and be like, oh, I love, I I can't even name one, unfortunately, right now. Uh, But mine are all greatest hits. Okay. I think mine are too, so I won't worry too much about that. All right. How about you go your number five and I'll go my number five? Uh, my number five is L.A. Woman. My number five is Touch Me. No, oh, I love Touch Me. 
Um, All right. That's a good one. I, I like a lot of like the more like romantic door songs. Yeah. Almost none of them. I like it because <laughs> I, I like touch me because of school of rock. I think a little bit. Oh, okay. Cause that's the song that Jack Black teaches the kid who's right. playing the keyboard. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. My number four is strange days. That's a good one. That almost made my list. My number four is love me two times. That's a good one. That was a B side that was on an, uh, a, um, shoot, what do they call it? What do they call like mini records? L- like a 45? Like a 45, yeah. yeah. So my mom had a jukebox in our house with a bunch of 45s and it had Light My Fire and Love Me Two Times. So I've listened to that song like 500 times. Nice. Yeah, it's good. My number three is The End because I'm a pretentious douche and I, genu- <laughs> I genuinely love that song. And also because of its use uh, in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, yeah. If it if it's the end in Apocalypse Now, it would be on my list. If it's just the end on its own, <laughs> I, I love it. I, I, I can't do it. Um, I weirdly know all the my words. Number three. <laughs> do you really? I really do. The killer awoke before awesome. dawn. He put his boots on. He took a mask from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. And... Anyway, <laughs> is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. <laughs> Um, it's nothing new. You've heard this podcast through and through. <laughs> um, all right. Number three is break on through. Okay. Me. That's my number two. Okay. Let's, uh, my number two is five to one. Love five to one. Yes. Uh, my number one Great is like, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Great use of five to one. Great use of five to one Rambo last blood. <laughs> the only good thing in that movie. Oh my gosh. I don't remember that at all. And I did see that movie. The montage of him killing everybody at the end is to five to one. Is it really? Yeah. The Like the original doors version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we both have, I think the same number one light my fire. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. It is good stuff. Again, I was I was very surprised because I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Doors fan until we started this exercise. And then between watching the movie and the documentary, I just want to listen to Doors music. Um, and that 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 caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. Before we go, I got to there was something I was going to ask you about because there was an IMDb trivia. It was like who they were looking at for the part of Jim Morrison. So I wanted to run these by you. And oh, see what all you right. Okay. It's amazing to um, think that they would consider anybody but Val Kilmer. Well, it says that the movie kicked around for 20 years before production started. Oh, so not, not that amazing. The people, then, I guess. Who, the people who were, but, but none of these guys are like, all these guys are mostly contemporaries of Val Kilmer. Oh, okay. So I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what they're talking about, but like, okay. So Tom Cruise was one naturally. I don't see it. Not no, I don't either. But I think he was enough of a star that anything was he was considered for anything, basically. Yeah, Uh, Jason Patrick. Okay, I mean, that's that's the version where you have to tell it from somebody else's point of view. I think. Yeah, I agree. Because he's not big enough to carry it. Right. These next two fascinating. Oh, do you like Rush? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Do you like Rush? That's a total addiction movie. Oh, no. 
I don't, I, or I haven't seen it, but like, um, they're not my, like, well, Jennifer Jason Lee is one of my favorite stars. Patrick is such a, like a, I don't know. I'm not a big Jason Patrick guy. All right. So you don't want to see him get hooked on drugs? Not really. <laughs> you have to like them in order to want to see them get hooked on drugs. I'm also a little bit specific which which drugs are they're being addicted to. <laughs> okay. Like I don't want to see heroin. If it's if it's cocaine, alcohol, hallucinogens. <laughs> I think I'm being... Not a lot of movies about people getting hooked on hallucinogens. No, probably not. No. Um Yeah. Anyways. Um the next two I would love to see. I don't think they would be better than Mel Kilmer, but John Travolta and Keanu Reeves. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> that's not going to work at all. Um, Travolta, Ian, maybe if they made the movie in like '81. Yeah, yeah. I think he has like the look of it from sure. like the yeah, like the early '80s. But yeah. um, okay, Ian Astbury. I don't know who that is. I don't either. Um, Michael Hutchins from In Excess. Interesting. Ian Astbury is a real singer from the band The Cult. Okay. It makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Michael Hutchins would be too sad, so I'm glad it's not him. Right. Uh, Bill Paxton, which I don't get at all. <laughs> Only if he did it as Chet from Weird Science. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard Gere, which I would see. Uh, okay, again, if you're talking like 1981, Richard Gere, maybe. Yeah, Johnny Depp, uh, that might have been interesting. Yeah, and you can kind of see it, and he narrates that documentary, and is obviously a fan. Uh, yeah, he probably could have pulled it off again, not as well as Val Kilmer, because nobody's doing it as well as Val Kilmer. Uh, and Bono, really. Yep. <laughs> All right. I'd rather see Jim Morrison be the front man of YouTube. It's Jim Morrison in the doors. Um, oh, by the way, going back to Vanilla Sky real quick. Vanilla Sky is a total Richard Gear movie, just so happens to star Tom Cruise. How so? Because it's like he's white, rich, and in love, but he can't seem to get it right. Oh. All right. Richard Gere is like the apex mountain of like rich white guys who can't figure it out. <laughs> I hear Richard Gere and I immediately go to like Runaway Bride and I can't picture him from that movie in Vanilla Sky. Yeah, I go to like Intersection, Autumn of New York. That kind of thing. <laughs> sure. Uh, when I was I was flipping around HBO Max and I saw Red Corner and I'm like I haven't seen Red Corner so I watched the trailer for it. That's one of the funniest trailers ever. I don't remember the trailer for it at all. I remember the movie coming out. I never saw it, but yeah, I never saw it either. But I think I need to that and talk radio. That's my day. There you go. You're not going anywhere. There's too much snow. So Red Corner, it is. Too much snow? Are you talking about Bright Lights, Big City? I am. That was the original title for Bright Lights, Big City. Michael J. Fox in Too Much Snow. Yeah. <laughs> also the original title for Snowden. Mm-hmm. Too Much Snow. I'm going to have my own I'm cable network Edward where it's just Snowden. addiction movies. And it's going to be like, see your galaxy of favorite stars all struggling <laughs> with addiction. 
Yeah, I, I we differ in that way. <laughs> like I call it the Benz. Tune in. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's gonna do it for our show on the Doors. Thank you, Adam. This was super fun and only served to make me want to watch the movie again, which is always a a good sign when we finish talking about it, and I want to rewatch it immediately. This is the end of the Doors podcast. The end. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.